Okay, good morning. All right. Happy Easter. So my name is Dave Goodspeed, for those of you that don't know me, and I'm here to give you my Easter story. My wife and I are from Evansville, just down the road. We went to high school there, and I had the uh, privilege of uh, going to University of Wisconsin and uh, wrestling for the Badgers. Now, um, there we go. Some good, good, good shout-out for the Badgers. Now, I'm going to tell you that I wrestled at 134 pounds. I cut a little weight, but I wrestled at 134. And I'm here today to tell you that I still weigh 134. I, I, I just use kilograms rather than pounds. <laughs> Anyways, I was a freshman on the team, and a guy named uh, Dennis Jewell came up and asked me if I wanted to be in a wrestler's Bible study my freshman year. Danny Jewell never wrestled a varsity match in his career, uh, but he was uh, what Dave calls an everyday missionary. And so I said, sure, I thought it would be a good idea. Now, at that time, if you had asked me about myself, I would have said, you know, I'm a pretty good Joe. I try to do things the right way. I follow the rules most of the time. Uh, I went to church uh, growing up. I believed in God and Jesus and Easter. I had, I had heard John 3.16 a bunch of times. I didn't know what it meant, but I had at least heard it. And uh, I, in a typical wrestling uh, mentality, I thought of life as having a scale. And if I could just keep the good heavier than the bad, I could live that way that perhaps I would, quote, pass the test and that someday God would see me as okay and I would get into heaven. Now, that's a pretty common way of thinking, and I imagine that many people here think that way, or at least it did think that way. But it, in, our, in that Rustler's Bible study, it turns out that, that none of that is actually true. There's none of it's in the Bible. So uh, we began to read, and I started to find out a whole bunch of stuff. Now, the first thing was that we're all sinners. And, you know, Romans chapter 3, it says, that None are righteous, no, not one and all fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So now that, that didn't seem too hard to accept. I was certainly a sinner. I wasn't uh, uh, a perfect guy by any means. I made a lot of mistakes. So uh, I saw sin in my own life, and I saw it in everybody else. So just the idea that I was a sinner wasn't a big hurdle. But then what came next was the consequences of that sin. And it says a couple chapters later that the wages of sin is death. And, and then Paul and other writers really aren't talking about the end of the life death that we all experience, but rather death as an, as an eternal separation from God. Now, why would that happen? Well, it has to do with because it, sin does this because of God's holiness. And because he's holy and because he's perfect, he cannot exist in communion with sinful creatures. And, and we're not talking here about big sin versus little sin, gradation of sin. We're just talking about sinfulness. That is, sin, sinful beings. That's what I was. And I think this gets at the whole crux of, of Christianity, which is God doesn't grade on the curve. He can't grade on the curve because of his holiness. Well, that was a, that was a, a revelation to me because now I, Dave Goodspeed, had a problem. But the good news is in God's love, he created a way or uh, he, he had a provided a way for us to be redeemed. And on that first Easter weekend, Jesus took the sins of me, sins of you, and sins of all of humankind on his body. He bore it, and he died the death that we, could, that we should have died. 
that we should have, oh, the debt that we owed, he paid that debt that, 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 was, uh, that we couldn't afford. And by doing so, he justified us in, in God's image, and he, he wiped our slate clean so God could see us as clean again, and then he could have communion with us the way that we were designed to be. Now, I, I think that Easter is really the only way that God could actually satisfy both his holiness and his lovingness simultaneously. And, it, and, and if we go back to that verse that I read earlier, we, we said that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But look at what comes right after that. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. A propitiation, the full payment of our penalty, the full payment of our penalty by his blood through our faith. Now, I faced this reality that maybe my scale thing wasn't going to work anymore. And I still struggled, though, with the, with the desire to have some, some part of my salvation. It just seemed only fair that that would be the case. But somebody along the way gave me this illustration. I just want to share it with you today because it helped me a lot. Now, suppose all of humanity was lined up on the coast of California. And God's holiness was represented by Hawaii. The only way for mankind to get into communion with God on his own would be to swim to Hawaii. And as you might imagine in this story, the better person you are, the better swimmer you are. So the gun sounds and everybody jumps in. And they start swimming. And over time, humankind starts to spread out. Now, I'm no Michael Phelps. You should see wrestlers trying to swim, by the way. It's pretty funny. So I, I mean, here I am a mile or two offshore. I'm trying my best, and I'm trying to work on my breathing, my stroke, and you know, as best as I can. But I look up ahead of me, and, and, and there's Jack. And, and then beyond him is, is David. And now I want to tell you, after the first and second service, David came up and said, hey, can I be farther out this way? You know, because I only had him here after the first two services, but he, he, he kind of wanted to be out there. So I said, all right, fine. Last service, you get it. So there he is way out in front swimming away, the best person there is. <laughs> and, then, and then I look backwards, because we always like to look backwards, right, and compare ourselves to those behind us. And there, three feet offshore, drowning in six inches of water, is the worst person ever to have lived. Whoever that is for you, the worst person drowning. And we look forward to, to David and back to that person there. What a big difference it is. Humanity spread all out. But what is the difference in terms of Hawaii? We're all going to drown. We're all going to drown. And the big differences from our perspective just pale in comparison to the perfection that God has in Hawaii. And that was really important to me. And here's something that will kind of blow your mind. Think about this. If you go to Hawaii and you turn backwards and you take a telescope and you look back to the California shore, you'll see me a couple miles offshore and you'll see that worst guy six feet offshore and guess what? We look exactly the same. Just two little dots far, far away. Both with a sin problem. God looks at me the same way as the worst person in the world. That, that just blows my mind. Talk about a humbling, sobering thought. So what's needed here? What's needed is not a set of swimming lessons. What's needed is a lifeboat. And on that first 
First Easter, when Jesus rose on Easter morning, he validated his death three days prior in which he paid the price for us and he became the lifeboat. Now he goes around and offers that to each one of us. No matter if it's David or me or that guy there, we all get offered that lifeboat. And it's up to us then to get in. It gives new meaning to the Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? For by grace we are saved through faith. And this is not of our own doing. Not by work so that no man can boast. Not by swimming, but by a lifeboat. I went home that summer after my freshman year, and I started to ponder all these things as it just in my mind as, it, as I was struggling with it. But, but, and, but Jesus said in, in Revelation 3, I stand at the door and knock, and he just kept knocking. Or maybe in our analogy, he just kept his hand right there waiting for me to grab it. And finally, my sophomore year, I, I got in the lifeboat. I got in the lifeboat, and I'm in Hawaii now. I'm in Hawaii. Now, I'm still trying to be a better swimmer, but I'm not doing it to get to Hawaii. I'm doing it because that's what God wants me to do. And on that very day that I climbed into the lifeboat, I was maybe 19 years old, at that very day, it went from Christ dying for humankind sins to Christ dying for my sins. And as I want to I close with Second Colossians, I'm just going to paraphrase it. But it says that I have this certificate of debt this decree against me, of hostile, hostileness against me. And on that Easter, Jesus took that piece of paper, he wrote, paid in full, and he nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. That's my Easter story. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Uh, thanks, Dave. We love telling stories uh, of God's transformative work around here. And, uh, and so the inevitable question becomes, if that, if that has taken place, what, what is the warranted response? And so we just want to look at the response that comes from that transformation. And, uh, and, it, and it creates gratitude. But gratitude is more than just saying thank you. Uh, I think of maybe my kids who are here in this service on Christmas morning. If they got a pair of socks, uh, they might grin through their teeth. Thanks, Dad. But, but how, how much emotion and heart is behind that thank you? I would argue not very much. Uh, but, but then, possibly, if they received an Xbox... Uh, there might be a lot more delight and gratitude that, that starts flowing, and yet that heart of ungratefulness could still be there when the gift that has been received, and they bring it and show it to their friend and say, look what I got that's better than what you got. There's still that heart that isn't delighting in the giver of the gifts. There's a delight in the gift but gratitude is a form of delight when it comes to delighting in the giver. And then a third criteria of gratitude. Gratitude generally rises in direct proportion to how undeserved a gift might be. That 
If you go to work, you don't often write a thank you card to your employer saying thank you for the job. You might see it as a fair trade of resources, that there is an exchange of gratitude being given. And so you might not have a proportional response or there's a proportional response to the gift. We're going to look at a story today that contrasts the response of a woman and a Pharisee and their awareness of the gift that they've received from the person of Jesus. And so, uh, and so we're going to see an unlikely hero emerge uh, from the story that Jesus then celebrates this woman's response in contrast to the response of the Pharisee. So pray with me and, and we will dig into the text together. God, you are so good. Thank you for uh, the reality of what we get to celebrate this Easter Sunday of what took place 2,000 years ago that you went to the grave on Good Friday and yet you did not stay dead. You conquered death and rose victoriously and we celebrate that reality every Sunday for 2,000 years uh, that you rose again on a Sunday. So help reveal yourself to us as we explore what is written about your interaction with this woman and this Pharisee. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen. And so we're going to look at a text. I'd encourage you, you can open up your Bibles. There's a Bible in front of you uh, or on your iPad or your iPhone. We'll be in Luke 7, 36 to 50. And we do that every Sunday. We believe God wrote this thing called the Bible, this text, and recorded it in this particular case through Luke. Luke walked with a guy named Paul and, and he began to record all the circumstances of who Jesus was and what he accomplished to give those readers certainty about who Jesus is. And so all we do every Sunday, we just read from this word. This text comes from Luke 7, and I'm going to read it on the screen. Uh, you can follow along or in the Bible in front of you. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, a Pharisee. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, where she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask, this costly ointment, a, a life savings of ointment. And you're going to see some, some uh, um, ancient practices of humility that we might not practice today, but you could make the correlation to what a practice of humility might look like. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if Jesus were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and another 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so we're going to do just a a contrasting. We see in the text a contrast between this woman's response and this Pharisee's response in their understanding of who Jesus is and what he's able to accomplish. And, And so we start with the woman. And it's implied. She doesn't say any words throughout this entire text. It's not recorded that she speaks. And yet her visible and visceral response tells us something about what she believes. She is overcome by her sins. And we see that recorded by Luke and what he says about her and recorded about what the Pharisee says about her. Here's what, she said, what he says. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... That there's this brokenness and pervasive hurt and pain that exists in her life. She is a sinner. And then he records the Pharisee's response and his understanding as well as everyone else in the room. What if, the, if Jesus knew what sort of woman this is, he would know she is a sinner. That, that there is this, this brokenness, this, this sin that is pervasive in her life. Not only does the Pharisee know it, not only does this community she's planted in know it, but Jesus is recorded as having an understanding as well. He says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many. And so this woman, from the moment she steps into this space, is understood with whatever background she brings. But I find it interesting, not just what's stated, but profoundly interested in what's unstated in the text. Because does Luke record what those sins are? Now, if you read any commentary, they will speculate all over the place what exactly it is that she's known for and does. And yet in the text, it is blatantly missing what exactly she's done. People want to speculate. In our culture, we understand we grade on a curve. We understand when we're swimming to Hawaii, there's people that are just a little bit better swimmers. And so we always look to assess where we are compared to others, and yet Luke, and this is no mistake, he doesn't include that. Why? Because it's not about that. It's about a recognition before a holy and righteous God. There is a gap that we could never swim the Hawaii on our own. And unlike her, we see a different response from the Pharisee in his awareness of what's going on in his life. Instead, instead of being overcome by sins, he seems to be blissfully unaware of his need. Here's what we see. Why? In his response towards the woman. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, saw Jesus' interaction with her, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know. He would know what kind of person she is. What does that say about his awareness of his own depravity? What does that say about his awareness of the sin that is pervasive in his life? And yet here's the irony. 
Is Jesus aware of what type of man he is? Here's what we see just a few verses earlier. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. The irony is Jesus is in his home. Why? Because he understands there is need of this Pharisee to be reconciled to God the Father. He recognizes there is a need. And, and, it, and this is not an antagonistic relationship, but as we read through Luke, the animosity just builds between Jesus and these religious leaders because they don't recognize their need. He tells a story to this Pharisee. He gives the story of two people that have debts. One owes 500 denarii and the other owes 50. And intuitively, the Pharisee understands when asked, who is the one that would love more? He says, well, I suppose it's the one who's had a larger debt canceled. Jesus says, you have judged rightly. But I wonder, here's what I wonder. Of the two, with whom does the Pharisee relate with? Does he perceive himself to have the larger debt? Or I wonder if he would say he sees himself as the one owing 50 he looks at his life and says, I'm a fairly good guy. <laughs> I have my life fairly put together. Do we sometimes like the Pharisees think, I don't have much debt that I bring to the table. <laughs> Blissfully unaware of the amount of brokenness and depravity that's in our life. The woman is overcome by her sins. The Pharisee, on the other hand, has been unaware of his needs. And then we see the woman respond with the awareness of her need, is directly proportional to her understanding of what Jesus can do for her life. Here's what we see. Again, don't miss this. She doesn't say any words, but it's implied she understands, based upon how Luke tells the story, what she understands about her need and what Jesus can do. He says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. <laughs> And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then the text ends with your faith has saved you. There's a recognition that Jesus is the solution to that depravity in her heart. She understands, I can't swim to Hawaii on my own. I'm never going to make it independent of someone coming to my rescue. And she sees Jesus as the solution to her need to reconcile her from this depravity and brokenness that is pervasive in her heart. She is convinced Jesus is the solution that she needs. The Pharisee, on the other hand, he seems to find Jesus interesting. <laughs> She's convinced of a need and Jesus is the solution. He, on the other hand, seems unaware of his need and responds with, with kind of practical interest. We see that at the beginning of the text. When one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, I don't see this as, as somehow the Pharisee is trying to, to, to put Jesus in a, in a negative place. We're going to see that animosity increase throughout the rest of Luke. But in this particular case, he seems just struck by this teacher that he seems wandering around this community doing these healings. And so he invites him to this kind of banquet or meeting in his house where others are able to watch and listen in. And, and he's struck with some level of interest in who Jesus is. 
I wonder in the church today, does some just find Jesus interesting? Do we see the church sometimes as a place where it's a good place to go? I want to raise good kids. And it does service for the community. I want to serve the community in some positive way. And so there's some level of interest. Now test this. But I often feel those that grow up in and around a faith community seem to have minimal awareness of their own depravity and therefore a minimal interest in Jesus. Those that have come to faith later in life seem to understand the depth of brokenness that is needed to be reconciled. And so I I wonder, I often ask people, when was the first time you came to the realization of the magnitude of the sin in your life? Can you recall that time where that became more aware in your life? For the woman, she was overcome by her sin. And she saw Jesus as the solution. The Pharisee seemed unaware of the need in his life and therefore had minimal response to who Jesus is. And then we see the woman's response. She wholeheartedly worshiped Jesus. And so we're going to walk through again. These are ancient practices of humility. And then we would say, what would be the modern equivalent? And standing behind him at his feet weeping. So you can picture this U-shaped table where they're sitting down reclining, feet facing outwards. And again, a public banquet or meeting where others are invited into this space. She's not rebuked for being there. But it struck everybody as maybe not the appropriate response in the context because she's not the hostess in how she acts. But she's weeping, standing behind him at his feet. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. She's wet my feet with her tears, Jesus said, and wiped them with her hair. And from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And she has anointed my feet with this ointment. There's this wholehearted response to who she understands Jesus to be. And out of that, not to pay him back, not as some debtor's ethic, but in recognition of who he is, she responds. Just like Dave said, he's in Hawaii. He's not trying to become a better swimmer to just simply cross the ocean to somehow reconcile himself. Instead, he recognized, I'm in Hawaii now, and I want to continue to respond with what's been done in my life. We see a difference in the way the Pharisee responds. His is one of minimal reaction. She has wet my feet with her tears, Jesus says, but you, you gave me no water for my feet when I walked in. She's wiped them with her hair. And from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. But when I walked in, you did not greet me with a kiss. You did not respond in recognition of who I am. She has anointed my feet with ointment, but you, you did not anoint my head with oil. We see this contrast of response between the Pharisee and the woman 
And this unlikely hero emerges. This woman who wouldn't be recognized highly in society is seen with an incredible response because she recognizes who Jesus is. So I wonder for us, did you walk in here today maybe carrying some brokenness or hurt or pain that even walking through these doors starts to flare up some of that baggage that you feel like you're carrying? That if, if people around you knew what sort of person you were, you're not even sure they'd greet you when you walked in. Or maybe it's the Pharisee that for you there's less awareness of any brokenness. You look at your life and you say, I'm a, I'm a fairly good person, not need of much forgiveness or reconciliation. Here's the beauty of the Easter story of what Jesus offers them both. He gives access to both fully. He understands they both have a gap that needs to be closed, and yet it's the woman who responds to the reality that he has the power to forgive sins. And so I want to invite the worship team up, because what do we do with this? What do we do with the contrast we see in this story? And here is the reality that this text, this Easter brings to our life. We live with this truth. We are all hopelessly lost in our own sin, and Jesus, and Jesus alone in his unlimited love, paid our debt. We couldn't swim to Hawaii, <laughs> and yet he offers a solution. He invites us, and he invites absolutely everyone to receive his mercy and forgiveness. It's faith in Jesus. Faith is all we need. And so this Easter season, I'm going to invite up a few of our kids as well to come and join me on stage. Because here's the simplicity of the Easter message and the message we hear every Sunday for 2,000 years. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's the simplicity and profundity of the message that he loves us, he loves us, he loves us. The simplicity of the message that we celebrate is that Jesus loves me. This I know.